Welcome to Go Live, a podcast brought to you by the AMIA Clinical Informatics Fellows, where we discuss the intersection of healthcare and technology and bring you entertaining interviews from experts in our field. Today, I am joined by two first-year clinical informatics fellows. The first is Jen Lee, a pediatric gastroenterologist and clinical informatics fellow at Nationwide Children's in Ohio. Welcome, Jen. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And then I also have uh, Keith Morse, incoming president of ACIF. Is that right? Uh, that is correct. Uh, as of last week, I'm now the acting president of ACIF. Awesome. And you are a pediatric hospitalist, and you're currently over at Stanford doing your clinical informatics fellowship. That's correct. All right. So welcome to the show. And I'm I'm uh, Chase Parsons. I'm a now graduated fellow uh, here. Uh, you know at, at um, and working now as faculty at Boston Children's, but um, as of right now, I'm still helping out with the podcast. And so this is kind of our post-clinical informatics, AMIA Clinical Informatics Conference 2019 podcast. Um, we were all hanging out in uh, beautiful, sunny Atlanta last week. And what did, what did you guys think of it? Was, your first, was that your first CIC? Um, how did it go for you guys? Yeah, that was my first CIC. You know, we did the fellow retreat, which was on the first day. Um, it was a great opportunity to get, get to know the other fellows. I really, really loved it. I, I agree. I think the you know, the retreat was uh, a treat. We had a great turnout. There was over 35 people who uh, came to the event. Um, and for a community of fellows that's around 80, that's a great turnout. And what kind of stuff did you guys have? I know that we had, um, you know, some some kind of leadership stuff that we learned uh, during um, our retreat. I know one year it was very cold at our re- retreat, so it probably wasn't the case for you guys. Um, but, uh, you know, what, what kind of content uh, did you have for the retreat? My favorite part was the imaging informatics. You know, we talked a lot about DICOM imaging, non-DICOM imaging, and how to incorporate that into the EHR. I, I really loved uh, a session that we had by... Um, her name was Dr. Carver. I forget what her, she's a CMIO in DC, maybe. I can't believe I forget what institution she came from. Um, but she gave really great uh, scenario-based learning. Um, and informatics can sometimes be a tough didactic topic because you either get super general by talking about change management or um, cultural things or super technical where you talk about differences between PACs and VNAs. Um, but Dr. Carver had really great examples of the types of scenarios that informaticists would find themselves in and it incorporated sort of role-playing. So we had a uh, scenario that was put on the screen of being in a meeting and there being some downtime in the ER and uh, somebody in the ER identifies a potential problem with lab specimen labeling and somebody proposes a solution. And then the whole room looks at you as the informaticist and says, is this a good solution? And, and then we discussed, you know, there, there was positives and negatives of, is this a reasonable solution? How would you go about assessing it? Who would you talk to? What would be your follow-up questions? And I think that that hit on a really uh, a sweet spot for sort of what types of skills do informaticians need? Uh, and you know, Keith, it, it was great. I think you hit the uh, nail on the head there because when you talk about downtime, it's essentially, you know, when the electronic health record goes down. And even as a first year informaticist, I've already been put in that position where the whole room kind of looks at you for your advice because you automatically become an expert. 
And so it was nice to do that in a controlled setting. Did you guys have um, any sort of workshop that, did you guys do a negotiation workshop as well? We, we did. And uh, um, we learned about the concept of BATNA, which is the best alternative no, best alternative to a negotiation agreement and yes. just the idea that you can uh, having having an alternative option is helpful in a negotiation. Um, and the, the whole concept, I think, is helpful because uh, as informaticists, there's a lot of times that we are defining for our potential employers what our role would be and what our value is. And so I think Negotiation is, is more important for uh, informaticists than potentially more traditional subspecialties who it's very clear what their um, compensation structure is like. Right. Well, and, and to be honest, oh, when, when, go I, ahead. when I was an informatics fellow, I think that, you know, a long time ago, I think like the main, I agree with, you know, Keith and what you both have said as far as like seeing everyone in person was so cool because we had, you know, talked on Slack, uh, you know, chatted on Slack for so long or like have kind of maybe seen or heard each other on the virtual case conferences. Are you guys still active on Slack? Is that still like a great community that you, uh, you know, you're kind of knowing people from there? Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that's something that we really want to bring back. Um, What do you think, Keith? Yeah, it's it's something that there's um, there is still Slack groups, and we it gets used relatively frequently. Um, we haven't hit on the perfect solution for consistent, accurate, universal communication among the fellows. Right. I think there are, there are a handful of people who are very active on Slack, and there are sub communities that are very active on Slack, um, but not everybody is. And I wish there was a better way right now we have some combination between slack and emails to keep everybody updated but you know what when getting back to that negotiation i don't know about you guys normally when i'm put in this situation of having to pretend to do something or having to role play for something it's kind of awkward but i think that working with the fellows it was really great it was the first kind of one-on-one role-playing interaction that i've done that was actually fun what do you think yeah, definitely fun. And also you got to see different personalities within the group. Some people are super aggressive negotiators and some people not so much. And from a non uh fellow standpoint, it was it was great to see like one, like the fellows that I, you know, had uh you know, we all did a fellowship and we had graduated, we're now, you know, working in more faculty roles and it's also great to see, you know, meet a lot of the, the informatics fellows as well. And it, and it's and it's also kind of nice to hear things that like I went through as a fellow, like, like uh, Jen, actually, I don't know. I don't even think you knew I was in the, the meeting, but you were in like the first row, you know, kind of being the gunner for um, one of the, I think that was like the CMIO workshop, um, right? You were in that? Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed it. I did not sit in the first row by choice, by the way, I was in the back and then I was there early <laughs> eating breakfast at the table and they came to my table and deliberately told us to move to the front. So that was, I was like, wow, she is intense. She's sitting right up front. And, but anyway, you, you said I like, did kind of take over it though. You were like, Oh, I, I'm in so many work groups where like, I, I'm not sure what my role is, um, kind of thing. And I, um, it, I think that was something that you had said during, during that meeting. And I, I think that that is almost, I was like, Oh, like I wish I was in, uh, you know, that I was in that role again. Cause it's like kind of like a, a relaxed, uh, you really like get to learn kind of the way things are working at an institution. And it's like really a unique opportunity that you have as a fellow. I think, you know, you're right. You don't have like 
the the role isn't as clearly defined as as when you maybe are like you know the clinical lead for for a project or something like that um but i i think like you know the role that you have as a fellow is like you can still you you know, learn so much uh, doing that kind of just inputting things when you have a strong opinion or, or even just like listening and seeing how the, like these weird uh, structures work in a complex institution. Um, so I, th- I thought that was something that, I, that was something I remember you saying that was um, very similar to a lot of our experiences. You know, and actually it's funny you say that because one of my mentors and one of the reasons that I went into fellowship in informatics after doing pediatrics and admin year and a GI fellowship <laughs> was because when you're a fellow, you actually get paid to learn. Right. So it's a really cool opportunity to just kind of put your, dip your feet in places, learn as much as you can. But then when you become a faculty, you end up being paid to produce something, whether that's RVUs or running projects. And so I don't know if that's been your experience, but that's what my mentors have kind of taught me over the years. I, I had a chat with uh, one of our, or our the CMI of our adult hospital, and he laid out, this is at the beginning of this year, uh, and he laid out the progression of observe, participate, lead, and that those three steps were what he expected the fellows to get through during fellowship, um, with the emphasis in a lot of ways being on the observe and participate, because that is what we can uh, do during fellowship. And then once you graduate and take on a position, you hopefully have a solid foundation in which you can lead the group and and, and have started doing some leading during fellowship. Um, but recognizing that each of those steps is necessary in order to have strong leadership skills. Yeah, and I think that it's it's because it's not like we're learning science or, you know, how to do a, an upper endoscopy. Um, I think it seems a little less concrete in our minds as we're doing the learning. But then, you know, once you are pushed out there to lead, I think that you can really see the value of doing the fellowship um, um, just from my short experience here. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And then taking it back to the conference, you know, at that CMIO workshop, and I don't know if that's the direction I want to go, but I think that it was incredible meeting all these people in leadership positions who had a lot of similar experiences and exposures that I have even as a fellow. And then I, I want to get into our interview today, but I just want to ask you both, did, have, did you guys ride the scooters in Atlanta? I did not, but it was amazing how quick you had to be on your feet to invo- avoid the other people who were <laughs> yeah. on their scooters. You know, I didn't either. Uh, My it, cousin broke her leg doing it. Or no, she tore her ACL recently, and I was like, not going to risk Also, we were sitting at lunch the first day, and somebody claims they saw Doug Fridsma whiz by on a scooter. So there may have been a sighting of the president of Amy on a scooter. That would have gone viral on tweeting. I wish we would have had that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So something that we did have the privilege of doing actually, um, you know, in Keith's hotel room was um, interviewing uh, Dr. Stephen Clasco. He's the, actually the CEO um, and president of Thomas Jefferson university and Jefferson health. Um, And he was the keynote speaker for AMIA this year. Um, it was really an honor to sit down and talk with him, Jen. Uh, Jen and I both got the privilege of, of speaking with him, and, and I think it was, we, we learned a lot. So check it out. 
Dr. Stephen Clasco, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You're a leader in healthcare reform, president and CEO of Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health, named to Modern Healthcare's uh, top 100 most influential uh, individuals recently, and also uh, Becker's Hospital Review. Um, they named you one of the top physician leaders to know. That's all from your Wikipedia page because you have a Wikipedia page. My, my, amazing. Own, my, my, my only cool thing is that... Uh, Fast Company called me the number 21 most creative person in business, the only healthcare person. The only reason I'm saying that is my kids, who are sort of your age, because um, they read Fast Company, for the first time said, oh, Dad, you must be important. So it took 30 <laughs> years, and am I getting in Fast Company for that, for, for that to happen? So, Well, thank you so much for joining us and, and for letting us ask you a few questions. Sure. You know, First off, I wanted to say that so you're actually the second DJ that we've interviewed oh, cool. um, as part of this podcast. Um, so what's what's the deal? What kind of DJ um, were so you? So I was a midnight to five DJ uh, on a, a stage called WYSP, and um, I thought that would be my career. I majored in broadcast journalism, minored in chemistry, and the 30-second version of this, I got fired because we were what's called a top 40 station playing all sort of short songs, and for... A reason better not discussed. I wanted a longer song, so I played the long version of Lucky Man by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And the station manager heard me, fired me, went back to Lehigh where I went to school, and they said, well, you're minor in chemistry, you know, could sort of be a doctor if you took the med cats. I said, oh, well, I need a job, so um, that's how I became a doctor. Oh. I don't tell my students that. <laughs> everybody's personal statement is I've wanted to be a doctor since I've been three, but, you know, but, but and, and the, only, the only other thing I'll say is I actually got into medical school part because of that DJ thing, because as it turns out, the interview, the, I, I hadn't thought about medical school, so I just figured the first place I get in, I'm going to go to. So, you know, the, the first place I went in, uh, the first place I got interviewed was Temple, and I was a little brash and whatever. I got a special delivery rejection from Temple um, back in the 70s when special delivery was somebody actually knocking on your door and saying, Temple doesn't want you. And, but my second interview at Harriman was, um, was an OBGYN. And if you think about OBGYNs coming in at midnight to five, a lot. They heard me. So he said, so in my little one page, I said, oh, you're li-. my name was Stevie Kent. You're little Stevie from WISP? I'll be so great to get you here. So, <laughs> so actually the DJ thing probably helped me become a doctor. Oh, but that's awesome. And Maybe I want to try DJ. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And so no, not like a club, more like a radio DJ. Yeah, I did do some club stuff too. And, and I, whenever I tell that story in LA, as I said at the talk, they say, oh, so that was actually when DJs made less than doctors because, you know, now it's... Now it's a big deal to be a DJ. Yeah, we know. I'm a pediatrician, so I mean, I know. Yeah, so you know the whole bit. (laughs) Kind of going along with that, you said, like, uh, you know, uh, teaching your students, uh, you know, or kind of like when you came into medical school, that was a unique thing, um, you know, being a DJ and and may have helped. And now I think one of the things you're focusing on is, um, you know, uh, creativity and, um, you know, emotional intelligence uh, for your medical students. So we have have required courses in creativity. Okay. And it goes anywhere from. Actually, my, my son's working with our medical students, and one of my sons an actor in New York, and he, he actually does improv classes with our students. Because um, if you think about improv, it's actually really good. One of the problems with physicians is we don't listen. We're ready to talk before we get the input. If you think about improv, you have to listen, because you might say something that's totally opposite of what I thought you'd say, and I have to be able to react to that. So the issue of communication skills... You know, listening and then and then being able to think quickly and working together as a team are not bad things for doctors. So we have improv. We also do something where our third year students literally have an opportunity to work with a theater company in town, take one or two things that really affected them positively or negatively in their first patient experiences, and turn that into a short five or ten minute play. 
where they actually help write it, help act in it with professional actors and whatever. And then we have it. So it really gets folks to sort of think about things outside of the you know, competitive, autonomous, hierarchical, science, P less than .001 world. Right. I mean, that sounds great. I didn't have anything like that yeah. in my training. I think it would be awesome if they were trained in that. Yeah, because... sometimes a standardized patient experience is not really the best thing right. for the residents. Right. Well, look, I mean, if I, change, if, if I could change the world, I think the whole issue, and, you know, I said this at the talk, we're going to have robots next to us. So, you know, by the time you've been winnowed out, you're pretty good at science, and you can pass multiple choice tests. Right. Like we did this uh, MD Master's in Design with Princeton University. We take up to 10 students a year that get into Jefferson after their first year of Princeton. And um, we encourage them to take something that major, not chemistry, biology. They go through their whole four years, and then they don't have to take the MedCats. And uh, they get an MD Master's in Design. So the goal is to have them be creative, literally think about things differently. Well, my faculty senate went nuts that they weren't taking the MedCats. How could I? You know, they got into Princeton. They've been winnowed out. They can probably pass a multiple-choice test if we force them to. So I think that's the key. The thing I don't understand for the AAMC, if you think about this, you guys are all, you know, filtered out based on your, your college experience. Then you get into medical school. That means, well, multiple choice tests. Then you go through your shelf exams. Then they go from the second to third year where you're actually seeing humans. What's the gateway? Another multiple choice exam. That makes no sense to me. That gateway should be, can you actually sit across from somebody and talk to them without foaming at the mouth? Because now you're going to be seeing patients. So the fact that we never, ever, ever filter out for that, you know, and, and every USMLE 1, USMLE 2s are all multiple choice tests. And never is it, you know, do you understand health equities? Can you communicate with somebody without, you know, can you listen? To me, that's that's the one thing I change in standardized testing. And, and this integration with technology, uh, you know, and as we have more technology, as the EHR is more integrated, yeah. you, know, you know, Howard Silverman, you know, has done a lot of uh, work with you know, teaching medical students how to use the technology as they interact with their patient. Is that part of this education? Or? Well, it's yeah, it, it's 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 not being scared of the technology, but then also thinking about the human in the middle, what we call the human in the middle. Um, so there's a great book that I encourage all of your listeners to read by Kai Fu Lee, uh, K-A-I dash F-U Lee. He he was um, the head of Google China until he realized that Google didn't understand China, and now he runs a large VC out in in in, in China. And it, the book's called AI Superpowers, and you know it talks a lot about why he thinks this fourth industrial revolution will be led by China. Because there's no barrier entry like there was in other revolutions around, you know, natural materials or manufacturing. It's all data. And so, but, but, but he talks about OMO, online meaning offline. That's the online technology meaning the offline technology. We have to then say if that's all going to happen, and I believe it will, then what is the role of the human? And that's, as I said, you know, at the talk today, that changes everything for medical school. Because if you really believe that, that there's going to be a robot next to you, then selecting medical students and nursing students to be empathetic, communicative, self-aware, culturally competent is really what you need. So you need to select and educate humans to be better humans than robots. 
because you're going to have robots. So I think it, it doesn't change things incrementally. It changes things 180 degrees. So I want to take that to the next level because a lot of us went into informatics because we want to expand our creativity and think that way with technology. So for those of us that didn't get that type of training in medical school, what advice do you have? Well, look, I think what, what I tell every uh, resident and fellow is, you know, if you're in a place that, that allows you to um, go and take outside courses, you know, you know, if you're the kind of places that all you guys are, you know, top places in the country especially, to go and take an outside course in your specialty is sort of ridiculous because you probably got it there right. and there's nothing you can't get. You know, so what I say is if, if somebody's giving you $1,000 or whatever to go take it outside, go take it on AI or go take it, you know, you know, go take it out in Palo Alto. Go take it out in Boston where, you know, they're doing some really interesting things and have it not be me- medical. I tell the same thing to people. I get probably 100 people here to call me and say, because I got my MBA at Wharton, you know, I, I want to get an MBA. I'm thinking of getting a healthcare MBA. I say, no, you're then going to learn from all the people that screwed up the system. You know, you know, take an MBA, literally, I mean, at Wharton, I took no healthcare courses. But what I wanted to learn is, you know, how did the auto industry get out of its mess? How did, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, reform Apple? So that I could then take that into, into, into my healthcare experience as opposed to having some CEO of a healthcare system that maybe is thinking incrementally better than us. So to me, get as far away from healthcare as you can in the outside part of your world. Can you speak a little bit about using technology to create this healthcare with no address? Yeah. You talked about that today. I'm yeah. So look, I think we, you know, we get so caught up in, um, you know, the academic medical center being the the the, the, the head of the universe, and I think I, I believe, as I said, you know, John Scully, the former CEO of Apple, is going to be my commencement speaker this year, and he he always says, you guys have to get away from technology just being a hobby. He said, look at banking. You know, uh, banking's gone from 90% in the bank to 90% at home. And, you know, we don't get up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to tell a bank. It's just that it became that. I believe that 50% of healthcare will happen at home. I believe that you'll go to sleep at night with a pajama that'll measure a lot of your respiratory rates or whatever, and it'll tie into a virtual voice assistant that will look at the external environment and, you know, and, 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 and help you with your day. I believe that there are already companies, you know, you know that, that are getting more and more people away from primary care doctor's offices. So, you know, the 90s and early 2000s was we have to get people away from specialty offices to primary care, and now it's, no, you really shouldn't be a primary care. And by the way, people are, are, are voting with their feet. As you know, more and more people are saying, I'm not going to make an appointment in my primary care office for 24 hours, and I'm going to go to the urgent care center. The next thing will be I'm going to do it at home. So to us, health care with no address means that Jefferson is defined by our care and caring, that Jefferson is defined by, you know, that at Jefferson we're, you're able to access us the way you access every other consumer good, that Jefferson helps you have health not get in your way of thriving, and that you join the Jefferson Club when you're not sick. So that when you are sick, there's no question because we're making it easier to come and test. So that includes transportation, that includes how you get appointments, etc. So it's not like people are saying, "Gosh, should I go to Jefferson or Penn because now I'm sick?" It's well, you know, it's so easy for me to just go and you know, I I, I might have cancer. I'm going to just go on the app and you know, get in uh, within 24 hours uh, and, and check the transportation option so I can find out today because I know that at Jefferson I'll get the answers back right away, etc. That's that's our aspiration. So so that. Five years from now, if somebody says, where's Jefferson? I hope you can't 
define that. And, and you guys have been doing telehealth since 2013, Yeah, right? we, we invested $40 million in telehealth where people thought we were literally nuts uh, back in 2013. We It's all ED run, so, you know, and, and I'm a big fan of, of, of A. Look, I, I decided that um, it's ridiculous. Every time there's a change in healthcare, we make lots of people billions of dollars that aren't us. So you, if you look at the EHR mess that we have, a lot of it's our own fault because the Judy Faulkners of the world, the all scripts of the world, back in my generation came to us and said, hey, you want to work with us? And I said, we're fine handwriting. So now we're upset that EHR is the only technology in the history of the universe that because of that technology, you need more humans to do what you did before, right? You're, we're all hiring scribes just to get back to the same kind of patient experience. So when I first started telehealth happening, you know, I saw the American Wells, the Teladocs, the MD Lives, you know. I said, these guys are, you know, it's clearly going to happen, right? You can see the future. So why should they be the $3 billion IPOs? You know, we, it's going to be, instead of my having a guy from Ohio answer my patient's call, we'll do it. So we invested. We actually have a development partnership with Teladoc, but they're the intel inside. All EDs, why? Because EDs are used to solving things, you know, for now. We, family docs are much more in the, you know, I want to create the relationship. Solving things for now, they're used to triage, you know. And, and it's fascinating because, you know, we now can keep most of our people out of the ED that aren't heart attacks or trauma or ambulance, you know, and either through urgent care. We, we build an urgent care center 24-7, a block from my main hospital. People say, well, that's nuts. Yeah, you know, you're, you're one of the largest DRs in the, in the city. Um, we did that because we might say, you know, you ought to be seen tonight at 3 o'clock in the morning. But I'm going to have you go to, to our urgent care center at 8th and Walnut. By the way, if you need to go to the hospital, it's a block away. And that will be a $49 visit, and you'll get in right away versus putting you with all the people that have a trauma and waiting four hours. We've got, we've got a left without being seen at our main academic medical center from like 5% to 0.3% in six months once we do that. So, so I think it's, 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 it's going all in as opposed to just, oh, all right, I've solved the telehealth problem because I just signed a contract with you know, MD Live and America Well, so I'm done. So tell me more about that. Say, say I'm a patient who wants to come into your hospital. What does that look like for me? So, so I mean, what, what, we, what we do, and again, some of this is, is on, on the sigmoid part of the curve of happening, um, we've done almost all our marketing digitally. So you would make a, a, an Internet schedule on your you know, iPhone or whatever. Um, uh, our goal is to have everybody be able to get to anything within 48 hours. There's something you could press to talk to somebody, concierge, at any point. Um, you would make that schedule, and starting with our new relationship with Ambulance, you would say, I would like the transportation option, I would not like the transportation option. You know, they'll ask you a few questions, and then if, if you need oxygen, you get transportation with oxygen. It's tied into our EMR. They would drive you down there. By the way, if the doctor's running late, they would say, I was going to pick you up at 2. I'm going to pick you up at 2.15 because the doctor's, you know, running a little late. They, they, they can see the, the traffic. They drop you off. They know when your appointment's done. You'll be back. And then we, we would monitor you partly, partly digitally, partly in person. We have a thing with cancer, for example. Uh, it's called Cancer Care 360, where... One of the big issues with cancer is caregivers. You know, you're a caregiver for somebody that got a new chemotherapy regimen, and now they're home, and they got a little piece of paper that says you, your mom might have vomiting. So now she's vomited three times between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. You know, is it overreacting or underreacting to take her to the ER? We have no idea. 
And you don't want to call a doctor. We have this whole thing, almost like if your cable goes out. Try this, try this, try this. And the last thing is press here. And there's a 24-7, you know, ED person that has your mom's thing. As soon as you press that, they'll have your mom's thing come up and say, you know, actually, I think she ought to come into our urgent care center because it's probably not anything horrible. But, you know, I can hear you're there. An electronic uh, nursing triage tool. Yeah, like yeah. Well, if you think about, you know, where cable has gone, not that I'm trivializing healthcare, but cable has gone from being the worst customer service where you couldn't get anybody and somebody had to come out right. to 90% of what they can do, they can now, you know, do there. And at any time, day or night, you can, on your, you know, some Comcast is in Philadelphia, I'll use Xfinity, you know, on your Xfinity app, you know, and I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, press this, you know, somebody's answering and say, well, we'll try it here. If not, we'll send somebody out. Well, it's the same kind of thing. Press, try this, try this, try this, press here. Somebody that has your record will see you. Uh, try this, and if not, we'll have you come in. Right. I, and so what makes Jefferson unique, though? Like, what, how, I know that you said you had institutional support yeah. and obviously a lot of funding, but, you know, um, in Boston, telehealth is not, yeah. you know, a, a possibility. It seems because of kind of the reimbursement associated with yeah. telehealth. So, well, look, I think what made us unique is that um, we're in a place like Boston with, you know, five academic medical centers. We're right next to Penn. And frankly, there have been three people in my job before before I, I got this. There had been a president of the university. There was a CEO of the hospital, CEO of the health system. They spent 95% of their time fighting each other. So they transitioned all three of them out and, and, and recruited for the first single campus leader. Again, I have an academic background, but it's not the academic background of a top school dean. It's not an NIH-funded thing. And in fact, I was around one of the chairs supposedly ripped up my resume uh, when I was applying for this job, because most of my research was in innovation and whatever. And when I confronted him just about uh, a few months ago, I said, is that true? He said, in true chair surgery fashion, um, well, actually, you, I only ripped up the ones that were thin enough that I could rip up. <laughs> and yours is one of them. I, said, I don't know if that's a compliment, but I'll take that. Uh, it wasn't personal. They want to straighten their hands. Said, yeah. so. But, um, um, you know, so, so I think, I think that, that they knew what they were getting. Um, they knew what they needed. And they knew that they couldn't, you know, I think what was smart for our board is to recognize is just competing with a place like Penn on Penn's terms didn't make any sense. So it was one of the things that I had to convince our faculty that, you know, um, the way I put it is, if you want me to compete with Penn based on NIH funding and U.S. News World Report, it'd be like if I was a finalist for this job and somebody told me the two most important criteria are height and hair. Now, for those of you in radio land, you know, I'm 5'7 and I have no hair. So that would not have been a good strategy. Um, but so, so I said, but here's another way you can look at it. We can be the entrepreneurial academic alternative to a place like Partners or Penn or Columbia or whatever, and still do great in NIH funding, and you know, and, and not that that's not important. And that's where we got to the old math and the new math. That, that the old math is academic and clinical, the new math is innovation and philanthropy. And what's different about Jefferson is we put our organization where our mouth is. So I go to a lot of places and say, you know, what are you about? We're all about innovation and equities. It's great. Where is your head of equities report? Well, it's reports to somebody, reports to somebody, reports to somebody, reports to the dean. Well, you're not really all about equities. Then. Well, about innovation. Well, that reports to somebody who reports to somebody who reports to the president. Well, then you're not all about innovation. So for us, the five people that vertically report to me is the, the head of our 18 hospitals, the provost of our two-campus university, the head of innovation, and the head of venture philanthropy, and the head of equities. So we are, we are putting work. 25% of, of my salary is based on innovation and equities. You know, so as, as opposed to just NIH funding and, and you know, EBITDA and hospital census. So 
and then we changed our vision. Our, our, our vision went from being what will be the premier academic medical center in Philadelphia, which was everybody's vision, to our mission is we improve lives. So that told the community that we're not just about us. Our vision is reimagining healthcare education and discovery to create unparalleled value. And we have three values. Put people first, do the right thing, and be bold and think different. So when I would go to chairs and deans, you know, when we first started that, I'd say, well, tell me what you're doing the values. Well, this is how I'm putting people first. This is how I'm doing the right thing. This is how we're increasing... You didn't tell me about being bold and think different. Oh, are you serious about that? Yeah. I said, the next time you, you come to me, one of the things you talk about better be something that's being bold and thinking different. So it gets them into a different mindset. And then once we have some successes, which we did, we had somebody give us $110 million once we announced that vision to name our medical school based on that vision. Then they start talking and say, wow, you know, while other people are depressed that NIH funding and clinical revenue and tuition might be going down, you know, yes, that's happening for us, but our innovation, venture philanthropy, and, 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 and digital stuff is, is really bringing in a lot of new revenue that can support the old man. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, and having the institutional support um, truly from the institution, I think, is, is key yeah. in, in, manage, in changing uh, you know, the, the actions of an institution. Yeah, so so yeah. We, we hired 100, we, well, it's up to 140 digital folks. And they're, they're, the average age is about 23, 24. They come from the gaming industry. The average time they come into work is about 2 p.m. The average time they, I was going to say email me, but really Instagram me is about 2 a.m. You know, um, but when you think about that cost compared to hiring consultants, you know, these are general young folks that are thrilled to be working in a mission-driven thing as opposed to be working for electronic arts on the next Grand Theft Auto thing. You know, they basically are saying, wow, this is fun. I'm being given some latitude. They're creating apps for us that we are exporting, but also apps for So now the head of what's called DICE, Digital Innovation Consumer Experience, literally sits on my cabinet with the provost and the, you know, and, you know, oh, God, we got this big dilemma. Let's bring McKinsey in. And that's, so give me a chance to try to solve it with my team. We had a thing where, because we have such a complicated university with two campuses, we didn't know what rooms were open and what rooms weren't open. And we got, we got like a $2 million, you know, uh, uh, thing from a consultant. Oh, we can bring in project managers to the guys from Dyson. You know, so we know I have an iPhone app that I can tell you right now, you know, if I get a call, you know, from someone that said we need a room, you know, for 10 people for this medical school uh, thing. Oh, well, the one over, you know, Gibbon is, is, is as of now is open till whatever. And, you know, that was all in-house. And now other places come to us and said, boy, can we buy that? Awesome. I mean, so having innovation... Uh, integrated into the campus. Well, and getting away from every everything has to be an academic doc or an academic person that is in your innovation pillar. Right. So yeah, we have great CMIOs and all those kind of things, associate CMIOs, and that's great. But again, these folks, some of these folks had, had never been had never been in a hospital before. The, so reimbursement for yeah. Yeah. for digital visits. It, yeah, it, it's it's things. So. Um, so, you know, again, what we've had to do, I, I mentioned in my talks that we're in the twilight zone of healthcare. We all talk about going from volume to value. Right. Most of us still get paid on volume. So we started with things where we are aligned. So, you know, we have 35,000 employees, and we're self-insured. We have a partnership with Aetna. Okay. So, right. we, so we started with them to, as a proof of concept to say, all right, so here's the new rule. We've done this for about a year and a half. Here, the new rule is that if you go through Jeff Connect virtual triage, and end up in our ED, it's zero deductible. costs you zero. And by the way, if you get admitted and you're in the hospital for five days, it costs you zero. If you just show up in our ED without going through Jeff Connect, 
then there's a $500 deductible and there'll be an increased deductible if we admit you. And by the way, for even our ER patients that show up, their triage happens digitally, virtually. I mean, that so, would change yes, time. Yes, so, so when they come here, instead of waiting there and the nurse will see you and triage you, the moment they get there, they get to a kiosk, and whether they're in our ED or not, they're getting triaged by the person that happens to be at Ethan Walnut, which is the ED person. So literally, you know, we have a person here, and you know, and then some of that's the telehealth, some of that's people in the ED. So if you're that same employee that didn't get the memo and shows up at the ED, says, "Look, you know, I'll be happy to triage you, and you know, we might suggest that you not you not stay there, or wait four hours, you go block away, and go to the uh, ED because you sprained your ankle. We'll, we'll we'll transport you. Right. But if you do that, then you'll be a zero doctor. If you want to wait the four hours with the people with strokes and and, and trauma, that's fine. It'll be a five hundred dollar deductible. Right. And by the way, for us that made sense because it's an average fifteen hundred dollars of my money if they end up in my ED, and about ninety nine dollars of my money if they if they end up on average in, in the other thing. And and the one other thing I'll say is it's really hilarious because the, the head of that, we, we run this National Academic Center of Telehealth. So the, the head of this is a guy named Judd Hollander. He's an academic ED physician. So these are not you know crazy people. We have six people that come from pretty reputable uh, organizations. But every once in a while, when he gives a talk, he'll say, oh, okay, Mr. Big Shot, so I guess you're going to uh, you know, diagnose an appendicitis in telehealth. I mean, he has this one great video where he shows, you know, well, actually, you know, in some cases you can. He said, you know, because we all think everything we do is rocket science. So he basically showed this video of somebody, you know, the patient has some left lower quadrant pain. He's got the video and he goes to the husband and he goes, can you ever see, you know, the, we call it the left lower quadrant. You go right here. Could you press down? Mrs. Jones, um, does that hurt? Yeah, it hurts a little. Could you let go? Does that hurt more or less? Uh, oh, no, that doesn't hurt at all. Okay, you don't have a ruptured appendix. Because that's exactly what we do, by the way. You know, and then you're like, okay, now that I know you don't, pretty much don't have a ruptured appendix, you know, could you go and do three jumping jacks? You know, and again, depending on how that goes, all right, I want you to come to urgent care or whatever. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but we just have this sort of arrogant thing of, oh, when you come to the OER, we do like these amazing, amazing things. And when you think about, you know, when somebody comes in with some left lower quadrant pain, you know, other than maybe what could be about fifty percent unnecessary cat scans, it's <laughs> yeah. going to be it's going to be it's going to be pressing down and making sure there's no rebound and you know et cetera et cetera that the abdomen isn't rigid. What I'm hearing is it's innovation to motivate change, changed behavior in the patients. It's 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 an obsession with making what's difficult in healthcare easier. And you know you know one of my colleagues, Dr. Frieda Lewis, and it's a great point. She said. You know, we've created Star Wars technology in how we handle an individual patient, but we've kept the Fred Flintstone healthcare delivery system. You know, I mean, literally, you know, I'm old. So, you know, in 40 years, I look at what's changed in my specialty of high-risk obstetrics, and it's unbelievable for an individual patient. But how a patient gets to us, in most cases, hasn't changed in 40 years. Still getting on the phone. If they want to change obstetricians, they still have to go to their doctor's office and sign in triplicate that they want to, you know, they want to change. I have to approve it to send it. I'm going to charge her to do that. I mean, the future I see is that the patient will own the record. It will be in the cloud, secure. And if she decides to change her doctor from, from me to you, she'll just change her password. She won't even tell me. In, you'll have her password and I won't. If I go from Citibank to Wells Fargo, I don't have to go to Citibank and get their permission to, to, to get on Wells Fargo's site. And I think, I think we'll move to that kind of model. We're, there's no chance that patients aren't going to, at some point, recognize that healthcare has to enter the consumer revolution. And I, and I had written an article that got some controversy, and, and 
probably deservedly, but I said, in some respects, patients have too much respect for doctors. And, and, and what I said about that is that if you have an 8 o'clock appointment and your doctor shows up at 845, 90% of the time, the patient said, oh, it's okay, Dr. Lee, I'm sure you had an emergency. Well, the, the big fat secret is that 50% of the time, that's not true. 50% of the time, the doctor just was, was at breakfast till longer. Uh, but they know from experience that the, that the patient will excuse that. In any other industry, that wouldn't happen. And I think what will start to happen is that people will say, look, I, I'm not going to accept that. And you know, and, and, and you know, I think it, I think especially I hate to over overburden the millennials, but I just have you know three millennial kids, and I just know what they expect service wise, and the chances that they're just going to allow you know, well, the fact that some sixty five year old doctor showed up forty five minutes late, and that's okay. It, I, I doubt that any of my kids would, would, would accept that. No, I had to use the Starbucks app the other day, and I still had to wait after yeah. I ordered ahead, and it was terrible. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, I mean, thank you so much sure. for letting us interview you today. Sure. And, I mean, you've done you know so much to change healthcare already. I mean, and we're young and, and just learning how to change healthcare, and this is seriously an honor to, yeah. to sit in the well, same. Listen, I'm, I'm old, and I'm trying to get the people that run assisted living facilities to do cool things, because I'll probably be there in a few years. So I want to <laughs> It's not just hospitals. So, and if you had one piece of advice to give to us, to give to our listeners about what we can do to invest in ourselves and learn to follow in your footsteps, yeah, so, we so, call we call it a pro tip. Yeah, so you're given yeah. a pro tip. Well, well, what I always tell people that, that that want leadership roles, especially in academic medicine, is you should always have five people under you that think they can do a better job than you, and three that are right. And I think what tends to happen in healthcare is we get scared by people that are smarter than us. And, you know, in, in, in my organization, everybody under me is smarter than me at what they do. And, and, and I mean that. So the president runs my 18 hospitals. It, you know, I've run hospitals, but he's much better than I was at running hospitals. You know, the person that runs my, my provost, that runs our two universities, much more academic than I am, much better provost than I was, even though I did that job. You know, the person that runs innovation, again, I'm, I, I tinker in it much. So, so what I see happen a lot as you move up, you get, well, I don't want anybody under me that could take my job. And I think it's just the opposite. You have to feel confident enough in yourself, especially when you're an associate CMIO or something like that, that you hire the smartest people that absolutely want your job. You know, because you're going to be better, your, your, your team's going to do better, and that'll get you to the next level, and then hopefully that person does get your job. I mean, I tell that to, you know, I have two or three people that want my job. I said, great. You make us great. I, you know, I would not be happier. Said because Jefferson is so great, because you did it, you, you should take Glasgow's job, I'm ready for that. I'll go up to... You know, whatever. But um, but I think that that's what that gets people excited about that they can make a difference. That's right. great advice. Yeah. So uh, live from uh, live ish from Atlanta from uh, Amy SCIC 2019. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Clasco. Uh, this has been great. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And we're back. Uh, so what did you guys think of that? Uh, you know, he, he gave us a lot of advice about leadership specifically. Um, you know, which I think was really interesting. Um, any, what, what are your takeaways? I, I thought it was a great interview. I have the honor of being a, a Jefferson alumni. So I went there for med school and, uh, I overlapped with Clasco maybe a year. So his, his name was sort of in the ether as he took over, but I was on the, on the way out to residency. And, uh, it's amazing. The, change that he has brought to the institution. And I think that's, that's pretty clear in terms of 
the growth and the new focuses uh, of Jefferson. Um, and it's it's amazing to see how much one person can affect an organization. And so, yeah, that, that, that was my take. It, it, it's not like from my viewpoint as a medical student, the, the, the culture and the initiatives and the direction that Clasco brought didn't exist prior to his arrival. So there wasn't, it wasn't like they were building their innovation pillar if, and he came along to uh, bring it along further. I mean, that, that, that was his idea. Are you saying that you took uh, improv classes in medical school? Well, to, to be fair, all right, all right. I, I should I should take what I back what I said earlier. Um, Clasco wasn't the only one. There was a one of our educators is a guy named Sal Mangioni who was a an amazing lecturer or continues to be an amazing lecturer, an amazing teacher, and he talked about art. All of his lectures were about art, um, and we did a go live in London recently and i was walking around the uh national british museum and walked past a modigliani painting and modigliani was a italian painter who typically painted women and they all had very long necks and i can remember dr mangioni giving us lectures about the necks of the modigliani painting um so Sal Mangioni has been talking about incorporating art and uh, creative thinking in medical education for a long time. And it's wonderful to see that now the leadership and the organization is is backing him up. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, perspective, you know, that Jefferson's had this history f- for a while. Um, and, and it's also kind of cool that, um, you know, that the new implement the new implementation of technology or the focus on technology has kind of spurred, you know, a reinterest in, in, in that, um, you know, need for art and creativity within medicine. I mean, I think it was great. I think that a lot of us go into informatics because we want to be more creative and it also kind of allows this outlet for the things that I may have done or do that people might consider being a waste of time. I can be like, no, I'm actually working on my leadership skills. So for me, when I was in medical school, I was actually in a band. I was the lead singer. I was a rhythm guitarist, and we used to go around and play. And at the time, a lot of people thought, oh, you know, that's a waste of time. But Clasco validated it that, you know, taking that time to develop yourself is just, you know, investing in yourself to become an innovative leader. Yeah, and, and, you know, so he talked about leadership and he talked about like the innovation, um, you know, in medical education and kind of looking for a more, you know, creative medical student. Um, anything else that, that came from, you know, either his keynote that he didn't touch on um, in the interview or, or anything else from the interview that um, was interesting to you? You know, one thing that really struck me was some of the ways that he's brought innovation and has gotten the patients engaged in their own care. So there's this big push for telemedicine, and I don't think everybody really knows the best way to do it, but in his Jefferson Health application where you can use that kind of as a triaging tool for an ED versus an urgent care versus coming in the morning, I think that's brilliant. And also being able to use technology to call family members on bedside rounds. I don't remember him talking about that on the interview, but... Um, I think that can really make a big impact in patient care. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, uh, you know, the family rounds thing too. And and even if it's not, uh, you know, even if it's something like asking the patient, 
you know, do you want to FaceTime your family member? You know, I think most of our patients have a family member that has an iPhone or, or an Android device, um, and we have, you know, free Wi-Fi in our hospital. I, you know, I think it's even remembering to to bring that up and and kind of integrate that piece of technology, that consumer technology into to the way we round, I think, you know, helps, um, you know, would help with, you know, the way that we interact with our patients and, and patient satisfaction uh, as well. I, I think Glasgow's point about, creativity and understanding and embracing change within the organization speaks to informatics at a, a much more primitive basic level. Um, in, in some ways, the informaticist role is to bring about change within the hospital. And now, because now in a lot of ways that takes the form of EHRs or new analytics tools or telemedicine tools or, um, analytics. Um, but 50 years from now, who, who knows sort of what the, the mode or what the uh, specifics of the change will be, but the, the lessons for how you introduce something new into a hospital uh, is going to be consistent. So although now our field is largely focused on data and, and information, I mean, who knows what it's going to be 50 years from now, nanorobots, energy pods, like something, but there's still going to be somebody who has to convince the hospital and the rest of the providers that this thing is important. I also think it's super interesting to think about, um, will what Clasco's doing work? Uh, so he's been at it for, I think, five years, and there's certainly been a lot of change. There's certainly been growth. There's certainly been innovation. Um, and, but it is not clear that this approach is successful in the long run. Um, we, I, I think it's going to take a decade to see if after all the numbers kind of shake out, uh, whether it's something that, that actually is, is a meaningful model. And there's lots of things that he is, he is building the infrastructure to adapt to changes that, he and and reasonably so, lots of other people see coming. Uh, he talked about um, payment that's not based on um, it's not fee for service. Um, more based on the episode of care, the the payments. Yeah, more, more based on the episode of care. But but he mentioned I think it was in this, in the keynote speak about or speech about how eighty percent of their revenue is still fee for service. And so if, even if he is super innovative and creates a system that supports uh, more sophisticated or value-based reimbursement models. If the industry doesn't change in that direction, it'll fail. And so I think he's, he's doing great work in preparing for change. Uh, and it just remains to be seen if that, if that change happens. And I, I think that other thing is just that, you know, the question about the payment, you know, how this, how this system works, you know, again, spread across the, the country is, is, the most difficult piece because, you know, they do have an, a, an agreement with an insurer, you know, to pay for these episodes of care and therefore they're incentivized to, to decrease, uh, you know, people coming to the emergency department and not just in, uh, episodes of care, but, you know, as they pay for the, um, as they reimburse for a population, like in an ACO model, um, uh, they have this incentive, but then how, you know, in Boston, we have many insurers, many hospitals, um, you know, how do we, do a similar model, um, you know, for, you know, kind of looking to see if triaging patients to urgent care or the ED, for instance. 
Um, sorry, sorry, Jen, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to take it back a step because for me, my whole medical training has really been about taking care of the patients. And I've learned some about billing when it comes to charging a patient for their care. But I don't know about you guys, but the whole idea of cost infrastructure and dealing with insurances and all of this is not something that I got formalized training in during my residency and fellowship. So Dr. Clasco has an MBA, and I've talked to a lot of other fellows who are thinking of going that direction. What do you all think about that? I can maybe offer insight. Uh, I, I do have an MBA, um, and it's a. I think it serves in a lot of ways as a good foundation for the types of decisions that you make in these sort of leadership positions. Um, but I, I think the real lessons come from working within your industry and your company and, and the specifics of your organization's situation. Um, I don't think anybody graduates from an MBA program knowing the solution to solving healthcare or how to motivate their individual organization to do it. So I think it's, I think it's a great starting place, but I, I, I don't think it has any of the answers that you or I or Clasco struggle with regularly. And, and I like the, the fact that he, you know, told us that to take an MBA, you know, there are healthcare MBAs, there are, you know, business, there are healthcare courses offered at business classes, at business schools, rather. You know, I, I really liked the suggestion to take something that was completely unrelated to healthcare, you know, if you're looking in the MBA or, you know, or the leadership or change management uh, space, because, you know, there, I think there's a lot to learn that healthcare can, uh, you know, learn from different industries as well. What do you think, Jen? Wait, regards to what? <laughs> Regarding the, the MBA thing. Are you going to get so, an MBA? So, you know, it's funny you ask that. I think I want to. I mean, I've already been, I'm a PGY-8 right now. Let's be honest. <laughs> so um, that's something that I'm really considering in the future. You know, when I look for a job to see if I can get the time to get an MBA, whether it's by having an institution support me or being part of a K grant through the NIH uh, for personal development. Um, I think for me, it's something that I want to do because I want to focus more on quality improvement. And so I want to focus on improving quality of care, but also decreasing the cost. Um, you know, so that, I think it was a great interview. And, and uh, you know, again, it was an honor to, you know, interview him the, the, and, you know, in his position and also as the keynote speaker of AMIA. It was great to be given that opportunity by both uh, Dr. Clasco um, and AMIA. Um, and so, uh, Jen and Keith, have you guys listened to this show before? Oh, yeah. Every single episode. All right, great. We have at least three. Um, and so I, we do this thing, this pro tip thing. We asked Dr. Clasco about it. Um, you know, he gave us some great leadership advice, and and I think it's a fun part of the show. But you know, just as a, as a review, it's it's uh, something that's awesome that we want to share with with uh, the listeners. So so Jen, are you able to provide us with a pro tip uh, for the listening audience? So my pro tip for efficiency is keep your in-basket in your email at zero. I started doing this about a year ago, and it's really made a big difference in my ability to get stuff done. When at the start of fellowship, my program director said, one of the things I want you to do at the end of this fellowship well is manage your outlook and your inbox. And that at that point, it seemed like a silly goal to have. But now that I've gotten a lot better at it and have done it, it's one, harder than you think, and two, super useful once you can do it. 
I'm I'm going Keith. I'm going to give my pro tip before you, just because I am uh, right. That wasn't your pro tip, right? Nope. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just because <laughs> mine goes along um, with Jen's, and mine is um, blocking off time um, in, in you know not like personal evening time, but time to get stuff done. Um, and and you know and this is, goes along with the same um, you know Outlook management, calendar management. It's not something that you would think you would need, but. You know, a few weeks in advance, if you see that you have an open few hours on your calendar that you know is going to fill up quickly, um, you know, um, putting a, a placeholder event over those three hours um, and marking yourself as busy um, is really helpful, um, you know, just to get stuff done and to be um, ahead of the game um, kind of for your projects and, and just getting work done during the day in the future because, you know, meetings fill up fast. And I think that's, that's um, something that's been very helpful for me. So Keith, what's your, what is the current acting president of AMIA's uh, pro tip for everyone? Sure. So this one comes from walking around the CIC poster session last week in which there was a lot of fellows presenting and you wouldn't think that it was possible to have a design revolution in academic poster layouts, but it seems like there is. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of the Better Posters, which is a uh, design layout by a guy named Mike Morrison, and the it's pretty clear that it's pretty it's pretty clear that these posters are different because the middle two thirds of the poster is huge block texts that has the primary conclusion of the paper in or of the poster in plain English. So big title at the bottom. It has a QR code. And the thinking is that when you are walking by a wall full of posters, it gives you, a, from a distance, understanding of what the paper's or the poster's conclusion is, and you can talk to the presenter kind of with that already in mind. Um, so I just thought it was interesting to see how how posters can change. And so if you want to learn more specifics, it's better posters on uh, betterposters.blogspot. Um, you can check it out. Okay, my poster did not have that. I yeah, hope mine, it was mine didn't good, either. <laughs> Does that mean? Yeah, it, it was it was a minority, five. but but more than just a couple. Yeah, and I think um, Evan Ornstein, uh, you know, he was one of the chop fellows. He did an amazing job with with that kind of format for the poster, and I thought it was uh, you know kind of a, a great layout, and it showed his the point of his poster, and, and was a beautiful design as well, which I think is important as an informaticist. And so Jen and Keith, uh, this this was a quick show, a quick recording, and I, th I think it's great. Um, you know, it's our first uh, show in a long while, but I'm hoping we can kind of increase the frequency moving forward. And uh, it was a pleasure to, again, interview Dr. Stephen Glasgow. Thank you for um, hanging out with us over in Atlanta. And Keith, Jen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. This is great fun. See you next time. Yeah, go live.